chapter 20, verses 1 through 29. Early on the first day of the week, while it was still dark, Mary Magdalene went to the tomb and saw that the stone had been removed from the entrance. So she came running to Simon Peter and the other disciple, the one Jesus loved, and said, They have taken the Lord out of the tomb, and we don't know where they have put him. So Peter and the other disciple started for the tomb. Both were running, but the other disciple outran Peter and reached the tomb first. He bent over and looked in at the strips of linen lying there, but did not go in. Then Simon Peter came along behind him and went straight into the tomb. He saw the strips of linen lying there, as well as the cloth that had been wrapped on Jesus' head. The cloth was still lying in its place, separate from the linen. Finally, the other disciple, who had reached the tomb first, also went inside. He saw and believed. They still did not understand from Scripture that Jesus had to rise from the dead. Then the disciples went back to where they were staying. Now Mary stood outside the tomb crying. As she wept, she bent over to look into the tomb and saw two angels in white, seated where Jesus' body had been, one at the head and the other at the foot. They asked her, Woman, why are you crying? They have taken my Lord away, she said, and I don't know where they have put him. At this she turned around and saw Jesus standing there, but she did not realize it was Jesus. He asked her, Woman, why are you crying? Who is it you are looking for? Thinking he was the gardener, she said, Sir, if you have carried him away, tell me where you have put him, and I will get him. Jesus said to her, Mary. She turned toward him and cried out in Aramaic, Rabboni, which means teacher. Jesus said, Do not hold on to me, for I have not yet ascended to the Father. Go instead to my brothers and tell them, I am ascending to the Father, to my Father and your Father, to my God and your God. Mary Magdalene went to the disciples with the news, I have seen the Lord. And she told them what he had said, that he had said these things to her. On the evening of that first day of the week, when the disciples were together, with the doors locked for fear of the Jewish leaders, Jesus came and stood among them and said, Peace be with you. After he said this, he showed them his hands and sighed. The disciples were overjoyed when they saw the Lord. Again Jesus said, Peace be with you. As the Father has sent me, I am sending you. And with that he breathed on them and said, Receive the Holy Spirit. If you forgive anyone's sins, their sins are forgiven. If you do not forgive them, they are not forgiven. Now Thomas, also known as Didymus, one of the twelve, was not with the disciples when Jesus came. So the other disciples told him, We have seen the Lord. But he said to them, Unless I see the nail marks in his hands, and put my finger where the nails were, and put my hand into his side, I will not believe. A week later, his disciples were in the house again, and Thomas was with them. Though the doors were locked, Jesus came and stood among them and said, Peace be with you. Then he said to Thomas, Put your finger here. See my hands? Reach out your hand and put it into my side. Stop doubting and believe. Thomas said to him, My Lord and my God. Then Jesus told him, Because you have seen me, you have believed. Blessed are those who have not seen me and yet have believed. This is the word of the Lord. Well, good morning, everyone. 
love being together with you today. What a beautiful day. So I'm gonna say something. I feel like I'm not going out on a limb by saying this, but I like to say this. I feel like this is my evaluation of our culture, but we as a people and, and culture love new things. I feel like that's correct. I feel like it's an adequate kind of assessment of culture. We love the smell of a new car. We love new technology. I mean, why else do we need to get a new iPhone every year? I mean, they're basically the same thing every year, except maybe they got rid of the home button, which I hate. But I still gotta get a new one. I hate the fact they gotta get rid of the home button, yet I still got a new one that got rid of the home button. I don't know. It's basically the same phone, maybe the camera's a little better, but we always get the new things. We love the newer and better things. And that's how technology thrives. They depend, our, our markets thrive because of this. Maybe our fear of dying or of being finished allows us to constantly look for new. Maybe we love the idea of new because we love starting over again. We love new possibilities or because we feel the need to make things bigger and more spectacular. For me, the idea of new tells me I can do better this time. I love that idea. Something new means I can do better this time. Do you guys ever wish you could go back in time and change something? Do you ever wish you could take a conversation back? Take a conversation back. I thank God for new opportunities because the first time I started dating my wife, Gina, um, I was not very good at it. I was weird, awkward, um, loved working too much and thought I was really cool when I wasn't. And I thank God for second chances and thank God that Gina gave me a second chance at dating because the first time I bombed it. On Easter, we get to celebrate the best new, the ultimate new that makes all new things possible. I know that's hard to understand, but I pray you get that today. The Easter story is honestly full. It's, it's difficult to understand. <clears throat> As a matter of fact, it's full of people being confused and not getting it right away. And we saw that in our reading today, right? The Easter stories from 2,000 years ago are full of people being confused and not getting it. Mary thinks Jesus' body has been stolen. Peter sees linen wrappings and can't work out what it's all about. The disciples didn't understand the scriptures. The angels question Mary, and she still doesn't know what's going on. Then she thinks Jesus is a gardener. You can hardly get more misunderstandings into a couple of paragraphs if you tried. And the point is this. Easter has burst into our world, the world of space, time, reality, real history, real people, and real life, but our minds and our imaginations are too small to contain it. So we do our best to comprehend something so far above and beyond us and fit the explosive fact of the resurrection to the ways of thinking we already know about. Now, at one level, at one level, the, at one, one level, the continued confusion of the disciples is a mark of the story of authenticity. I mean, if someone had been making up it all up a generation later, as some people have suggested, they would hardly have put such confusion going on into the writing. More particularly, nobody would have made up the remarkable detail of the cloth around Jesus' head still folded up in place by itself, or even the extraordinary fact that Jesus was not immediately recognized. I mean, if you were making this stuff up, that's probably not what you would have put in. The first Christians weren't prepared for what actually happened. The disciples were not at all ready for what happened here. Nobody could have been. As one leading agnostic scholar has put it, it looks as though they were struggling to describe something for which they didn't have adequate language. It was as if the early Christians disciples were struggling to come up with language for like, I have no idea what happened here, this is crazy, the resurrection, Jesus is alive, uh, blah. And it shows the authenticity of the story. And being confused about the resurrection isn't confined to the first century. 
Ever since then, people have tried to squash the Easter message into conventional boxes. It just won't fit in. N.T. Wright shared about an article in the Times on Good Friday, 2008. Here's the quote, or here's what N.T. Wright says. It's up there as you follow along. In an article entitled Universal Truths, the writer suggested that everyone can sign on the dotted line of the Easter message. Good Friday, the author wrote, commemorates sacrifice, the giving of oneself as a martyr for the love of others. So Easter is the achievement of victory through suffering. These are universal spiritual truths. And the more interaction acquaints those of different faiths with the beliefs of others, the clearer is the common acceptance of these truths. So in conclusion, the Easter message draws the devout together, presumably the devout of all religions. From suffering, goodness can triumph. Death is not final. And then the writer offers a grand and woefully misleading last sentence. That is what all faiths in Britain can proclaim and where they can come together this weekend. Well, I'm sorry, but no. Of course we must work to find common ground and common purpose with other faiths and none. These things matter enormously. But you don't achieve anything by downgrading the unique message of Easter. This is some sort of generalized half-truth that out of suffering comes goodness. Honestly, even that concept is hard to believe in this world, isn't it? No, we're talking about something unique that happened one time in the fullness of time. Something that happened to the previously dead body of Jesus. Something which the vague religiosity of modern America cannot comprehend. Any more than did Peter or Mary or John grasp the truth. Easter is what it is, is, Easter is, what it is because Jesus' crucifixion is a central event of world history. The moment towards which everything was rushing and from which everything new emerges. This means that with the death and resurrection of Jesus, a shockwave has rattled through the world. So that despite appearances, the world is in fact a completely different place. What N.T. Wright, and this is what I said, what N.T. Wright was quoting in this Times article, is this idea that, guys, universal truths exist out of the Easter message of Good Friday, but what I'm professing to you, and I'm shouting out with everything in me, saying to you is no. What happened at Easter was a unique circumstance in the course of history. That somebody was really risen from the dead. That somebody, was, there was once a dead body and he's now alive. And it's a historical truth and a truth that we believe in and it changes everything. It's not a feel-good story. It's a reality. As a pastor, I talk to so many people who are scared, people who are anxious, people who are hurting, people who are afraid, people who are sad, <clears throat> people who are struggling with problems. And because every problem is unique in any way, it seems to me, but there seems to be one theme underlying all these problems. And the theme is resurrection. Resurrection, newness. In 2 Corinthians 5, Paul says this, if anyone is in Christ, he's a new creation. The old is gone, the new has come. Jesus says in Revelation 21, I am making all things new. Underneath all the problems is this thirst for resurrection. Because something like this, if, if only I could take back the last 10 years of my marriage. If only if I could go back 10 years of my life. If only I could start over. If only I could take back those things that I said. If only I could have a redo. If only I could start fresh. If only I'm able to do this again. If only I could relive that experience. If only I could go back to my high school days. If only I could make this new decision. Maybe I can get it right this time. It's a desire, a thirst for newness. 
And here's Jesus Christ and he comes and he, when he says, I am the resurrection and the life, he's saying, I can provide this newness. <coughs> he says, I can do it. You want fresh start. You want newness. You want to make it so that you can start all over. You want eternal newness. Jesus is saying, I can do it. Jesus comes and to all sincere doubters today and, uh, and to all of us, he says, it's not that just that I was resurrected. I am the resurrection. Present tense. That means I was dead and now I live. I was dead and now live and my life can become your life if you unite with me by faith. You'll die to the old and my new life and resurrection power comes into you. You see, in this passage we're looking at, it shows how Jesus Christ comes after this resurrection with arms full of newness. I don't get why we do Christmas uh, as a type of gift sharing, right? That's what, that's what Christmas is known for. For those of you guys who don't know, in America, Christmas is a time where you buy gifts for each other. And um, this is kind of like a normal traditional thing. But I don't understand it because I always wondered if Christmas is Jesus' birthday, how come we get gifts for each other? Right? That doesn't make sense. It should be like getting gifts for Jesus. <coughs> Thank you very much. We should be getting gifts for Jesus, not for each other, right? I always felt like Easter was the, probably the better day for gift sharing. Here's what happens. See, I, well, this is so cool in this passage. As soon as Jesus Christ rises from the dead, he says the word receive multiple times. He says receive, this is for you. He says receive the Holy Spirit. He says receive peace. He's giving out all kinds of gifts of newness. Today I want us to look at the resurrection I want us to look at it and see all the things that Christ has given us personally through his resurrection, personally through this newness. Actually, I'd like to divide this into two parts. Even though there are a whole bunch of realities in light of the resurrection, there's a whole bunch of gifts that we've been given. But I want to divide it into two parts of what we have in our reality today. And that's two things. There's a gift of faith, and then there's a gift of peace. We believe that in the resurrection, we've been given the gift of faith and the gift of peace. The main point of this passage I just read, Jesus comes to Mary, Jesus comes to his disciples, Jesus comes to John, Jesus comes to Thomas, and what's he doing? He's leading them to faith. The first and most important gift the risen Lord can give you, the reason you can understand, the reason you can get it, is that Jesus is not a dead teacher the way every other founder of every other religion or philosophy is but he's alive now, and as a result of that, he comes and he gives you faith. The first primary gift of the risen Lord, the gift on which all other gifts comes, is the basis of everything else is faith. He says to Thomas, stop doubting and believe. He comes to Mary, believe. He comes to the disciples, believe. In every case, he's leading people to faith. It's critical that we understand this. We're told in Ephesians 2, 8 and 9, for it is by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not from yourselves. It is a gift of God, not by works that no one can boast. The reason Jesus Christ has come to give everybody faith is because it's not something that we can conjure up on our own. It's not something we can produce in and of ourselves. It's not something that we can naturally come up with. Let me give you an example of this. Here's Mary. And we see Mary's reaction. She goes to an empty tomb, <clears throat> and here's Mary's first reaction. Somebody stole the body of Jesus. Now think about this, okay? This is the same Mary who the Bible tells us, even though uh, small sample sizes have occurred, this is the same Mary who saw miracle after miracle happen. This is the same Mary who's been traveling around with Jesus. And I love this. this a scholar says this. One scholar says that if it's really true, considering the population of Palestine at the time, 
consider that, that what Jesus, the Bible talks about is only a small sample size of what Jesus actually did, it's a possibility that for three years, death, sickness, and disability were virtually eliminated from the face of the nation. Jesus was massively doing innumerable miracles, incredible miracles, spectacular miracles. And remember, Jesus saw this, and Mary saw this. But not only that, Mary heard Jesus claim that he would rise from the dead. He made that claim so often and so thorough that even Jesus' enemies heard about this, so they actually put a guard at the tomb. So when Jesus claimed that he would rise from the dead, Jesus did all these miracles, why in the world was Mary looking for his body then? Why was she so shocked? She should have been the first person when she saw the empty tomb, she should have been like, oh, it happened, he did it. Boom, that's right. That should have been her first reaction, but it's not. She doubted. She had no idea what was happening. She says, they took it. My life is destroyed. My Lord is gone. Woe is me. My life is falling apart. Listen, if Mary could not come up with her own faith, what makes you think you can? If Mary or the disciples could not conjure up their own faith, neither can we. When Paul says, Romans 3, that no one seeks for God, no, not one, faith is not something that can just come up out of you. Here's Mary running around, everything is lost, he took everything from me. But faith comes to her in the form of Jesus reaching out to her, giving it to her, saying, believe. How powerful is that? Guys, can I tell you this? Right now, there is nothing in us that can conjure up faith. It is a free gift so that no one can boast. There's nothing about you that says, ooh, I can believe better than other people. It is a gift like only God gives. How do you get faith from the risen Christ? There are three things that Tim Keller says we need to do. Three things we need to do. Number one is we need to go to him, you look at his wounds, and you drop your conditions. So you go to him, you look at his wounds, and you drop his conditions. Number one, you go to him. Now that may seem obvious, but it really isn't. A lot of people have heard people say, you're saved by faith in Christ. And in their heads they say, well, I can't go to Christ because I don't have enough faith. Or I can't go to Christ because my faith isn't strong enough. It's not pure enough. It's not good enough. I'm full of doubts. I can't go to Jesus. Now, if you understand that faith is a gift, then this excuse is gone, right? This doesn't exist. It's a gift. You just have it or you don't. See, there's something very subtle and important you have to understand. In a very subtle way, you can turn your faith into work. The gospel, which has transformed thousands and millions of people over the years, is that Jesus Christ died for our sins and lived a perfect life on our behalf so that by receiving him as savior, God can receive us and adopt us into his family on the basis of what Christ did, not on the basis of what we do, not on the basis of any of our own good works. Or can I put it to you another way? The determining factor in your relationship to God is not your past, but Christ's past. Not your record, but Christ's record. That's the gospel. But it's very possible for you to say, that's right, okay, I have to have faith, but my faith is weak. My faith is not good enough. I don't feel worthy to go to him. And then you've turned your faith into a work. You feel like, unless I have enough faith, I'm not worthy. And there you are back to negating the gospel, trying to earn your salvation through having enough faith or strong enough faith. Faith is going to Jesus and saying, Lord, I know I'm full of doubts. I need your help even to believe. The minute you do that, you have believed and you received his gift of faith. I need your forgiveness, I need your help, I am helpless. Even my faith isn't good enough for salvation. And that minute you have gone to him, you believed enough to be saved. Can you do that? 
For those of you who feel that you've come, turned so far away, you've run so way, far away from God, for this, you have this kind of false lie that has been placed upon you that you, know, you have to look a certain way, act a certain way, be a certain way before God can accept you. There are some of you who maybe have come into church today and you're like, ooh, I haven't been struck down by lightning. Whew, God must not be paying attention. And that's a true story. Can I tell you guys, I had a, a woman, there was a film crew that had to come for something and she stepped onto the church and she was next to me as we were walking to the church and she literally hesitated at the doorway of the church. And I said, you okay, you coming in? And she goes, okay, I just, just wanna make sure no one's too close to me because I feel like I don't, anyone else can hurt when I get struck down by lightning. I'm like, what do you mean? And she said, I, just, I haven't been to church since I was a little girl and I feel like I've done so many bad things I can't walk back in here. And I just looked at her like, you're completely missing it, you poor thing. You see, it has nothing to do with what you've done. Your status before God is not based on your works or your record, but it's you, those of you who know and accept Jesus' record until your own, all it takes is you to say, I believe, help my unbelief. I'm not worthy on my own, I need your gift. You need to go to Jesus. You need to go to him. Two, you have to look at his wounds. I love that he shows Thomas his wounds. He shows his disciples his wounds. Because faith is not looking at your faith, but looking at him. Tim Keller says this, this is a really cool quote. Faith is like a windshield. It's there to be looked through, not at. If you look at your windshield, you'll crack up. If you look through your windshield, everything will be fine. Is that kind of cool? If you're driving and you're actually studying your windshield, the only reason I know this is because Gina's car has a crack in it in the windshield right now, and it's getting bigger. And I'm like, ah, oh. it started off really small. It's getting a little bigger and bigger, right? But if I'm driving and I look at that crack in the windshield, that's all I see. And I don't see what I need to see when I'm driving, right? A windshield's not meant to be looked at, is it? It's meant to be looked through. It's how you see the rest of the world. It's how you understand math and science. It's how you understand beauty and justice. It's how you understand love. It's how you understand the world and nature through the windshield of faith, through the lens of faith. Faith is saying, my Lord and my God, I see your wounds are enough for me. I see that because of your wounds, I can be accepted. Your wounds are enough. You go to him, you look at his wounds, you look at the wounds and through faith believe that those wounds were enough to earn your salvation, to carry the weight of your salvation. And then three, you have to drop your conditions. Faith is not a psychological certainty. Faith is a coming and saying, I need you, and I drop my conditions. What does that mean? Do you notice how Thomas had all these conditions? Thomas had these, he says, what were they? He says, if I could put my hand in his side, if I could put, which is kind of gross anyway. Like, why would you say that, Thomas? You know? Obviously, because he didn't believe. You know, you wouldn't say something that gross anyway. Put my hand in his side, touch the hole where his nails went. That's just gross. Jesus shows up and he says, stop doubting and believe. Your condition, do you notice he says, put your finger here, see my hands, reach out your hand, put it on my side. That's what Jesus says to Thomas. Does it say Thomas went and did it? No, it doesn't. He didn't, he didn't touch him. He said, my Lord and my God was Thomas. As soon as Jesus said, you can do this if you want Thomas, you can come and touch. And Thomas doesn't do it, he doesn't touch. One, because it's gross, but two, he just says, my Lord and my God. Right there, Thomas dropped his conditions on the spot. Some of us have gone to him and we've also looked at his wounds, but we're saying, if I give myself to you, if, if you put something in my life that's missing, if you'll take something out of my life, if you'll get rid of this, or if you'll get me through this, if you'll give me this, if you give me that, friends, you cannot bargain with someone like Jesus. 
When Jesus himself says, look at the holes and nails that made, what he's saying is, I gave myself utterly for you. Now, how can you come to grips with somebody who has given himself utterly for you without giving yourself utterly back? There's no other way to come to grips with a person like that. Your ifs show that you want to bargain, that you don't want to put your entire life out there, which is what God demands. If you want faith, don't you see there are no excuses? If you want you don't have to sit back and say, oh, I have to clean up my life first. I don't have to have enough faith first. All excuses drop at your feet. Go to him and say, Lord, I'm helpless. I need your forgiveness. I even need faith, and that is faith. Then look at his wounds and say, your wounds are enough. Then drop your conditions and say, I give myself utterly to you, and you're in. This idea, guys, if, if I give myself utterly to a woman, if I give myself utterly to my wife and say, I'm, I'm everything, I'm yours, and she's like, eh, I'll take bits and pieces. It doesn't work. Drop your conditions. Believe. Romans 10, 9 says, if you declare with your mouth, Jesus is Lord, <clears throat> and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. You have to believe to be saved. To be saved means you are saved from the brokenness of the world, from the fears of insignificance, from chaos, ultimately from death. You need to go to him look at his wounds, drop your conditions, and receive the gift of his faith. And not only are we saved from death, that's the first gift we've been given. We've been given the gift of belief, but as we're saved, we are conformed to Jesus' likeness. We're becoming more and more like him. The new you, the new you gets peace and hope in the resurrection. I once served um, under church staff, under a senior pastor named David Cleft. And it's a great type of ministry. Um, in particular, he taught me a lesson that I'll never forget. Uh, David personally walked through um, what I believe is one of my worst nightmares, one of the greatest fears I think some people, parents ever have, is he walked through the death of his first son. And I remember one Easter service, he stood up in front of the whole congregation. He had tears in his eyes, but a huge smile on his face. And he said, thank you, God, that Christ is risen from the dead. Otherwise, I have no hope. And I remember, I just remember seeing my pastor saying that, and saying that with tears in his eyes, but with a smile on his face, saying, thank you, God, today, I thank you, God, that, you are, that Jesus Christ is risen from the dead. Because if he wasn't, I have no hope. You see, the resurrection of Jesus isn't just a fact, it's a dynamic of our lives. Our resurrection began with Christ when he rose from the grave. It becomes yours when you receive Christ as your savior. Now resurrection is continuous work God is doing in your life. God is a resurrecting God. His routine work is that of reviving people and redeeming lives. That is what he's doing. And as I look and as I see the fears that people have, as I look and see the hurts that people go through, and I look and see the underlying concern, the underlying fear, this desire for newness, and the fear of death, and the fear of the worst things that can happen in this life, I realize that I need more than anything else, I need the resurrection to be true. Because if the resurrection is true, then I can no longer fear death. If the resurrection is true, then the ones whom I've lost... I'll see again. If the resurrection is true, then there's nothing on this earth that I, can, I need fear. 
if the resurrection is true, then I believe that we have a resurrecting God that, that even everything that happens in life is, go, is for his good and he's doing a miraculous work in my life now. This is how we get the second gift we talk about. This is the gift of peace, right? And peace is, oh, something that has so many different contexts in working with peace in the East or, you know, people just say, hey, I'll be really cheesy. I'm like, peace, I'm not going to do that. Peace, I think, for us as we define it right now is what I see so many people in our church need. We struggle with anxiety, right? As a culture, do you guys know that we're probably the, in America right now, by virtue of being in America right now, you're probably one of the safest cultures, times out there in the history of the world. You know, we don't worry about where our next meal is. We have medicine. There's, people aren't like just, it's not like the Wild West or the, the Dark Ages. There's not plague going around. It's really, generally, really safe. But we are the most anxious people ever. We want peace. We crave peace. And I think part of the reason is we fear death more now than we've ever done before because we were able to conquer and beat back death in so many different ways. And because we were able to fight back against it in so many ways, the inevitability scares us even more as a culture. Every time the risen Christ appears to anybody, what's the first word he says? Do you guys notice that? He says, peace. I don't know why, but I got the cheesy image of Jesus right now with the peace sign like that, but no, no. What's so peaceful about knowing the risen Lord? Because the minute you have known the risen Lord, you have beaten death. I was reading an article recently that it said it's hard um, to get people to do more social work jobs. And I found this to be very true. I, um, I know a lot of social workers here, and social workers are way underpaid and their work is really, really hard. Uh, I'm, just, I'm just gonna say that as a fact. <laughs> this is not like an opinion, that's a fact. Underpaid, they work really hard. But the problem also is more difficult than anything else is actually saying that social workers to work with the elderly <coughs> is the hardest. They're getting social workers to work with children because children are cute and they like children and these awesome kind-hearted people are working with children all the time. But social workers to work with the elderly has become such a problem. It's so hard to get. Somebody did a study to find out why social workers coming out of social work schools don't want to work with the elderly. And the main problem is that folks often don't want to be confronted or facing and that reminding of death that often. Do you guys know what a midlife crisis is? I just discovered this, by the way. Not that I don't just, not that I discovered what a midlife crisis is. G and I bought a convertible. <laughs> no. I actually did not know what the age of, because I was curious the other day. I typed in, when does a midlife crisis happen? I was curious. I was just like, I don't know. I was like, is it time? I don't know. And so, it's like, if the average age is like 70-something, I'm like, oh, oh, I need to, like, the, the life expectancy is 78, I'm saying. What's midlife? I was trying to do the math. But people have midlife crisis when you finally realize, I'm going to die someday, and what have I done? Right? Isn't that what kind of the root and the heart of a midlife crisis is? Jesus says, peace. Because a Christian knows, because of the resurrection, that the worst thing that could possibly happen to you is the best thing. I'll say that again. What's the worst thing that can happen to you? Is you die, and that's the best thing that can happen to you. It's a dark door into a light. Not only that, the resurrection tells us that in the Bible that Jesus is raised to the right hand of the Father, where he's in charge of history. 
He's managing all things for us. So because of the resurrection, we believe that even the worst things that happen in this life is only temporary and still used by God for good. And death is just a doorway to the better life. I know this is hard to live out in reality, but it's the truth. And we need to be telling and preaching and living this truth daily. See, here's the truth, and this is the real truth, is that this, is that if we believe in the resurrection, we believe that Jesus is resurrected and sits at the right hand of the Father, and he's in control of history, that he's working all things out, that even the most worst of tragedies, even the hard things that happen in your life, it's for a purpose. And it has significance, and it's only temporary. And the worst thing that we can think of, the worst thing that we're most fearful of, which is death, leads to glory. Do you guys hear that? I know this is a hard concept to understand. It's even harder to flesh out. It's even harder to live out every day. But Isaiah 41 says this, 41.10, so do not fear for I am with you. Do not be dismayed for I am your God. I will strengthen you and help you. I'll uphold you with my righteous right hand. This promise given to the people of Israel is ours as well. We have peace in light of all circumstances because Jesus is risen from the dead. So death, where is your sting? Stress and anxiety have no place here and here. Jesus has conquered the worst of fears and provided belief and peace. He has answered our deepest longing. He has called us family. I love, get this, I love this part. I hope you don't miss it. I think most people could. I love how Jesus tells Mary to go and tell my brothers. It says that. It says, go and tell my brothers. Do you know this is the first time Jesus ever calls them brothers in the Gospels? Now, why in the world does Jesus do that? What else could Jesus have said there? He could have been like, hey, Mary, um, go tell those uh, miserable uh, deserters, right? The ones who ran away when things got hard, right? Or tell those guys, I can't remember anything that I teach them, you know? Tell those guys who are just clueless idiots, he could have said any of these words. Instead, he doesn't call them deserters. He calls them brothers. Guys, Jesus answers the deepest longings, their deepest longings and our deepest longings. He brings them into family. He lets them be known, lets them be loved, and gives them purpose. They are family forever. That's their new identity. In the resurrection Christ, he gives them a new identity. He says, you're my brothers and sisters in Christ. Are you brothers to the Lord? Are you in family? Are you adopted in? Here's one way you can know. You know if you know that you're a deserter. Let me say that again. If you're willing to say, yes, I know that I'm a deserter. Yes, I know I've gone my own way. I know I try to live for my own glory. I know I deserve death and rejection, but instead I come to you knowing that I deserve all these things, but you give me faith and I come to you. Until you admit you're a deserter, you can't be a brother. But then if you come, and you can come today, if you come and you see his wounds and know that they were enough, if you come today and you see his wounds and know that they're enough, and then you drop your conditions and say, I believe in you. I trust in you. I need you. That's all you need. 
Some of you are here in this place and you don't know what to believe. Some of you are here that this is weird stuff. We're talking about resurrection. Some of you are here and maybe you've heard all this stuff before and you've never done anything about it. Some of you are here today and maybe something tugs at your heart and says, I want to know peace. I want to know confidence. Right now I'm riven, driven by fear and anxiety is what drives my life. But instead I would love peace and hope to drive my life. We get this peace because of belief, belief in the resurrection. So I'm asking you today, will you come to the Lord? Will you look at his wounds and see that it's been enough? Will you drop your conditions and will you choose to believe? And I like the word choose to believe. It's very much like marriage. I love the word choosing to love rather than falling in love. You guys have heard me say this before, but those of you guys haven't, I hate falling in love, the term falling in love, right? And here's why. If, because if I can fall in love, that means I can fall out of love. Right? It's like, it's like, oh, I'm walking along, doing my day, my normal life, and all of a sudden, I'm in love. Whoa. But if that's the case, if that's true, then I can just go about the rest of my day, oh, I'm in love with somebody else now. Oh, I'm in love with somebody else now. I hate the term falling in love. Like, it's just something that happens. Like a disease. You know? <laughs> I can't stand it. It's something you just catch. You know? No. We choose to love. So as you're walking along your life and I'm like, no, I choose to love her. And love means sacrifice. Love is intentional. Love is a verb. Love is an action. Love is all this stuff. So I choose to love her. And when I, choose, when I get married and I say I will love her for the rest of my life, it's because I can trust in the fact that I'm choosing to, not because I fell into. Does that make sense? What we're saying is, do you choose to believe? Will you say that I'm a deserter and I need Jesus? Not my own work, not my own ability, but what Jesus did. Will you choose to believe? And can I tell you that when you do, the freedom and the peace that comes with when you believe in the resurrection, when it's real to you, when it's reality to you, changes everything. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we ask right now that if there's anybody in this room who has a yearning, who has a a stirring in their heart placed upon them, that they respond today. God, may they choose to believe in you. And God, we thank you for the work of Jesus. We thank you that he was resurrected, that our reality is a resurrected life. God, that our confidence is that the worst that this world has to offer is temporary and that you are using it for good and for glory. And that even death is nothing. Death is just a doorway, a dark door into eternity with you. So we live this life with confidence, possessing your peace, trusting your sovereignty and your goodness. So today, may we choose to believe in the resurrection and may we believe in it every day. In Jesus' name, amen.